In this next hour, we hear about school safety. How can schools and the community balance the concerns of safety and a positive learning environment without stressing or scarring kids? Can the community assist in addressing mental health issues with students and schools? We asked three experts on school safety to help answer these questions. Kristen Devitt is the director of the Office of School Safety with the Wisconsin Department of Justice. Joe Ballas is the coordinator of school safety and security at the Madison Metropolitan School District. And Jack Larson is a student at UW-Madison. The title of the talk is School Safety, Challenges and Responses. It took place on October 3, 2018 at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Community in downtown Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials on the League's position on this topic at their website at lwvdanecounty.org. But first we hear from League member Mary Anglin, who will introduce each speaker. We are well aware of the occasional mass shootings in our nation's schools, but it's easy to find news of smaller scale but still disturbing problems, such as weapons brought to school, lack of physical security, mental illness, bullying, racial disparities, anxiety, bad behavior, and controversies over the role of the police in schools. We couldn't tackle all the problems of violence in schools, so uh, in the end, we arrived at looking at recent efforts uh, on the state level and in Dane County to tackle some of these problems. So um, we'll be focusing on just that one little piece of the puzzle. But to cover it, we have three speakers who are well worth hearing. Our first speaker will be Kristen Devitt. She is the brand new director of the Wisconsin Department of or Office of School Safety, which is part of the Department of Justice. And it is a new agency as of March 22nd. She um, had been working at, as the Lieutenant of Patrol at Beloit Police Department. And she was also a part-time instructor for the National Association of School Resource Officers. We call them EROs here in Madison, but it, I think it's the same thing. Um, then she joined the police department here in Madison she was three years at East High School as an educational resource officer. Our second speaker is well known to many people, especially um, on the south side of Madison or those interested in community policing. He is Joe Balas, who retired in January of 2016 after 32 years with the Madison Police Department. He started the job of interim coordinator of school safety and security for MMSD in um, April of 2017, and he's still at it. And our last uh, speaker, probably not quite so much experience, is Jack Larson, who is a sophomore at UW-Madison, but he's managed to pack in quite a bit in his few years. He's the co-chair of the Young, Young Democrats on campus, and a founding member of Badger's Demand Action, which if that name sounds a little bit familiar, but not totally, it's because it's a child of an original um, organization called Moms Demand Action. So welcome to all of you. Thank you for being here. 
am Kristen Devitt. I'm the director of the Office of School Safety at the Wisconsin Department of Justice. Um, and I just started this position just shy of three months ago. Um, our organization was formed by the legislature on March 22nd. And I remember because I was actually, as a police lieutenant, sitting at DPI um, in a meeting about school safety. And um, I was the only police officer there. And everybody in the room was talking, talk. There was about 30 people there talking, talking, talking. And then all of a sudden, everybody kind of stopped and looked at me. And I must have had a look on my face. I'm not really sure what it was. But they just stopped and looked at me. And someone said, Kristen, we haven't heard anything from you. Um, do you have any opinions on the topic? And I said, well. And then a couple of months later, I became the director of the Office of School Safety. <laughs> So I'll tell you a little bit about my background um, and what got me to this position. Um, I started out as a social worker um, right out of college. Uh, well, while I was in college, I worked at a crisis hotline that um, worked a lot with people who were suicidal, but sometimes just people with chronic mental health issues that um, could be struggling with anxiety or, or something else and, and would just need someone to talk to. So that's kind of how I started my career as a volunteer. Um, and then I worked at a domestic violence shelter. Um, and then I ended up becoming a child welfare worker in Chicago. So um, I did a lot of work with kids who were in foster care um, with and, and actual entire families that had been through the foster care system because we know that these things can be generational um, and, and trying to work with families so that they could be strong enough to, to stay together. Um, I became a police officer um, after I was a social worker um, and started working as a school resource officer. I thought it was really interesting. Um, and lo and behold, I ended up really liking it. Um, and so I you know, worked in Illinois as a police officer for a few years, worked K through 12. I was teaching um, in the, the schools at that point, teaching um, character education, which is sort of the beginning of what we now hear about um, social emotional learning. Um, and so once I wanted to move and be closer to my family, I moved down to Georgia because that's where they are. And then I became a social worker again and was a child protective services investigator in the North Georgia mountains. So I've done child welfare in Chicago and in the North Georgia mountains. Um, very different experiences. I have stories about coming out of people's houses with finding goats on my car. Um, it was very, really interesting. I'm not going to tell you whether that was Chicago or Georgia. Um, <laughs> But my, my whole lens and the way I look at things, you know, after Georgia, I came up here, I was working at Madison, I worked at Madison East High School, um, and then went to be the director of the Law Enforcement Academy at Black Hawk Tech. So I worked in education um, quite a bit as well. Um, my whole outlook and everything um, that I want to do with school safety or that I think is important with school safety comes from the child welfare perspective. That's where I started my professional life. And so when I think about what we need to do to improve the safety of schools, I think about what is in the best interest of the child. Um, so that is really the focus that our office um, approaches school safety from. So as I mentioned, we were created on March 22nd, um, and we were created by Wisconsin Act 143. Um, and that basically created the, the Office of School Safety and then gave $100 million to the state um, to 
improve the situation that we found our schools in at the time. So we have this $100 million grant program that we're administering, and we essentially have about a dozen people locked up in a room in the basement, and they're typing away and reading grants, and that's pretty much all they really do. Um, but every time they get um, over 100 grants approved, we, we bring them food, so it's, it's good. Um, <laughs> so we are um, almost done with approving all of the grant funds, um, and so then the big job actually starts happening. So all of the, um, the tradespeople who are going to be installing the new technology in the schools, who are going to be reconfiguring some of the schools, who are the instructors who are going to be delivering training, all of those people are now, you know, foisting themselves into the education realm and, and getting all of this stuff taken care of. So this is the heavy lifting part. This is really the, um, you know, getting the money approved is not that big of a deal compared to the next two years of work that we have to make sure that everything's getting done the way it's supposed to. Um, one of the focuses that um, the legislature had was making sure that there was a collaborative effort between educators, law enforcement, and social services or mental health or behavioral health services. Um, so we definitely see things through that light, that there, there is a time and place for any one of those entities to be involved, depending on what's going on in the school. Um, and now there's also additional requirements for schools to give us um, their safety plans every year to um, make sure that they're approved by their, their school boards. Um, they have to give us blueprints so that if there's an incident that happens at a school, we can provide that information to law enforcement. Um, and so there's a lot of different things going on there that we have to um, take care of as well. So our, our grant funding, round one of the grant funding, really focused on facility improvements. And the reason why it focused on that is because we wanted every school district to be at the same baseline. Um, so if you didn't have security cameras in your school, we wanted to make sure that you could get that. If you didn't have um, the technology to have your doors locked or to buzz somebody in the building to keep your front doors secured, we wanted to make sure that you could do that. So we wanted everybody on an even playing field as far as that went. Um, but we wanted to make sure that everybody had a safety assessment done by local law enforcement. Um, and that would, again, give them the ability to become more familiar with the buildings. So in case there was an emergency, they could go in and, and feel confident that they would be able to deal with the issue. Um, and then we also required that schools no matter who they were or what kind of training they'd already had, um, that every staff member in those schools would attend adverse childhood experiences trainings um, and trauma-informed practices trainings. Um, because we wanna make sure that everybody in schools understands the challenges that our kids faced. Round two, we would continue to fund some facility improvements because um, there could have been some projects that they didn't realize that they might have needed to put into the, the round one of grants, but we're really focusing a lot more on training this round. So we're doing a lot of training on culture and climate, so those social-emotional learning programs that I mentioned before. Um, we're focusing on a lot of mental health training, um, and we're focusing on threat assessments um, and school safety intervention teams. So our philosophy is we're not really getting into the realm of what law enforcement trains for. Um, we're not going to be a reactive office. Our office is going to be proactive and preventive. That's what we want to do. We want to prevent violence from happening in the school from the, from the, from the get-go. So we're looking at early interventions to prevent 
the things that might happen to a child in the long run that would cause them to um, to make a threat or to attempt to secure weapons or attempt to carry out a threat. Um, so we really want to focus on the school safety intervention teams at all grade levels, our violence prevention initiatives, um, some crisis management protocols. So how are we going to handle a situation if it's if it's rising to the level of a crisis? Um, where are our school resource officers? How are they being selected and how are they being trained? Um, what is the threat assessment protocol that school districts are using? Um, and then to foster a collaborative team building environment, making sure that everybody's working together and speaking the same language. And that's one of the struggles that we have in this state is that every school district is speaking its own language. Um, and so when a child moves to a different school or a teacher moves to a different school, they, it's almost like they have to learn a new language all over again. So we want to standardize some of that stuff. So right now we're working on grant review. We're expecting to be done with our second round of grant reviews uh, within the next two weeks. Um, and we are um, starting to deliver our threat assessment team training, our adolescent mental health training, and we're starting to deliver our standard response protocol and standard reunification method training. And that's a crisis response model that um, that was developed by an organization called the I Love You Guys Foundation. Um, and we had a train the trainer session um, where uh, people from that foundation came and delivered a training in Manitowoc. And we had people from around the state represented at that training so that they could help their school districts prepare for a crisis. Um, and we are also giving guidance to school districts and law enforcement on sa um, school safety protocol and procedure um, and making sure that, that everybody is reporting the way the new Act 143 requires. So Act 143 now requires everybody who's a mandatory child abuse and neglect reporter to report threats of violence to law enforcement um, when, they, when they observe them. So again, that standardization of making sure that everybody's doing things the same way. So our near future pro, um, projects that we're going to be working on is, evalu is evaluating the progress that we're making and seeing if things are getting better in the state. And if they're not, what are the issues that we're facing and how can we fix it? Um, we want to take a census of our school resource officers and determine where they're at um, and figure out what, um, what training they might need or how they've been selected. Um, and then we also want to get some information back from school districts about the threat assessments that they're completing so that we have an idea of um, what is driving threatening behavior in kids. So as I mentioned before, we have a bunch of um, trainings that are, that are coming up in the near future, and um, we're probably in the next year going to be delivering about 50 or 60 trainings. Um, and then it'll probably go through 2020 as well. But the ones that we're delivering are adolescent mental health training, uh, threat assessment team courses, and a. Um, for those of you who are educators, you're probably familiar with FERPA, but that's the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, which is basically the educational HIPAA. So it keeps all of your academic records confidential. Um, but there are some exceptions to that when it comes to school safety and what information can be shared between schools and law enforcement. Um, so we want to make sure that everybody is um, trained properly on those um, legal, legal things. So if you're interested in training or training dates or school resource officers or the threat assessment, that's 
under my umbrella. So if you have questions about that, I would be the person to reach out to. Glenn Rayberg's in charge of emergency management and crisis management. So if you have questions, he's the guy to talk to about that. Um, Sue Whitstone is going to be in charge of technology for us, and we are going to be developing a um, anonymous or confidential tip reporting application. Um, and so she's going to be in charge of that project. And Erin Armbrust is working with Sue on technology, but she is the person who's really in charge of social emotional learning um, and, and how do we get kids through the day feeling supported um, and, and healthy in their environment. You're listening to School Safety, Challenges and Responses, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are Kristen Devitt, Director of the Office of School Safety with the Wisconsin Department of Justice. Joe Ballas is the Coordinator of School Safety and Security at the Madison Metropolitan School District. And Jack Larson is a UW-Madison student. Um, I'm glad to be here tonight. Kristen and I, we, um, we did work for a long time at the Madison Police Department together, and we got a lot in common in our backgrounds. I actually was at Platteville, too. Uh, Kristen did her uh, master's down there. I did my undergraduate Platteville, and I did my graduate work here in the 80s when I was a night shift patrol officer in my young 20s when I could stay uh, up and live on about three, four hours of sleep. did it at the La Paula Institute in Public Policy. So when I retired in January 2016, I'll uh, give you a little background. Myself, my wife and I, uh, Therese is a attorney with the division of the Department of Children and Families. We don't have any kids, but uh, clearly I was still young, had some gas left in the tank, and I was doing some consulting work for the U.S. Department of Justice out in Seattle and Spokane, Washington. So I had this nice 2016 where I was making these trips every so often out to Seattle, but I was out there about a dozen times to, to there in Spokane. And then um, Luis Udice was a name you might recall. Luis was in this job that I'm in today for 10 years. Um, and uh, from 2006, 2016. But Luis was turning 65. He was ready to shut her down, so to speak. And uh, uh, I applied for the job, um, but I wasn't sure if I was going to do it or not. And then there was, um, I said, no, 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 go interview people. Well, sure enough, right around Thanksgiving 2016, first it was Superintendent Cheatham, then it was former Chief Noble Ray, then it was Chief Koval, all calling me on the phone and say, will you go in and interview with them? And they're very persistent, so I did go in at uh, Christmas time, interview with them. Um, things didn't quite work out at that time. I couldn't ac accept the position. But uh, what happened then, a couple months later, the person that they hired in the interim, he did leave the position. And um, Jen called me in. They were in a really kind of a crisis. If some of you remember the high school, the fight they had at East High School where the girls were arrested. Michael Johnson, they were protesting out in front of the jail because a 17-year-old was in jail. And I told Jen, Jen, here's the hours I can work, because I had committed some other projects. I gave her about 220 hours between there and the end of the school year, hence the interim part. Now um, I'm doing this on a regular basis. I actually have got a contract with the school district to serve in this role. And uh, I tell you, a lot has ha happened and transpired in the last year and, year and a half almost I've been doing this. Kristen did a nice job going over um, the Office of School Safety, and when that was enacted in March, you know, some things, just think back a few months, gang, what was going on. I knew, we knew the legislature was actually working on an Office of School Safety bill um, back in January, um, but February 14th really uh, was a day that sent things forward when the shooting happened in Parkland, Florida. And I can't tell you um, how busy my world became after that incident in Parkland, Florida, because it really... Um, 
I think just raised the bar um, and raised the focus and the demand for action around school safety. Um, we were already busy at the Madison School District doing a lot of different things, but what happened uh, that February 14th really kind of uh, started a new chapter as we know it today in respect to school safety. When the legislature on March 22nd passed Act 143, um, we at MMSD really saw it as a great opportunity. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, kind of some things that tra have transpired since the spring and the work we're doing already as it relates to Act 143 and kind of where I see us going. PowerPoint that I'm showing you is a PowerPoint that we've used over the summer to train over, uh, 200 plus principals and assistant principals through various legal service uh, trainings. Those of you who've been in uh, the educational field before know summer times aren't just being totally off for principals and teachers. There's a lot of training in that you go to. And quite honestly, it's the only time of year to talk about stuff like this that we can really do that. So we are in busy um, preparing materials in late June and July, doing trainings in late July and August, getting ready for the back to school week. I kind of being around the schools now a little bit, I kind of call it, it must be like a, a D-Day felt like, um, or the invasion of Normandy, that that week before school, everybody is like operating up here. It's just like, God, when is school ever going to start? Because um, actually when we get all the kids in and finally get going, it actually kind of does settle down a little bit, but that buildup to school is something else. So Act 143, Kristen kind of went over a lot of the things um, that it did. Um, I'm going to touch upon a few of them here tonight. Um, uh, Kristen talked about the phase one, phase two grant. Uh, the first phase one of the grant, MMSD, did get, receive a million dollars, you may have heard, um, in that, um, the go towards uh, door locks and hardware, um, some video surveillance and some glass hardening materials. Um, phase two grant funding, we believe, we're kind of finalizing that. I thought Kristen might tell me tonight, yes, Jill, yours is getting approved, but we, we, think, we know it's in the works. I think we're expecting about a million and a half dollars for that. That's going to go towards the um, uh, threat assessment teams and um, the SSITs. We're looking forward to that. What this really, Act 143 is doing is really causing um, schools and police departments to work closely together. And I can honestly say that, you know, I think the Madison Police Department has had a good working relationship with the Madison School District, but it clearly, um, in my years, three decades actually with MM MPD, um, but I, I actually think it can be improved. And I think Act 143 kind of puts us on a path towards even uh, us working more closely together than we do today. Um, I mentioned Luis earlier was in my job, but even prior to that, um, the, the school safety coordinator for the Madison School District is a position that dates back to the late 1990s, and Ted Balistrieri was the first MPD assistant chief that worked this job. Ted was a good friend of mine. He hired me on the department in 1983. Ted worked it till Luis was there, and then now I'm uh, there after Luis. Um, some of the things um, that I want to cover here real quick is, the, you know, how do we roll um, in MMSD with response to our operations? and uh, responding to uh, critical incidents. You know, what exactly do we do? And I've kind of cut to the chase here. Um, thought some of you probably saw me on the news last week with respect to La Follette. In fact, the last two weeks, we've had a few things happen out there. Well, um, last week when that uh, young man was involved in the shooting incident two blocks away from La Follette and then made his way back to La Follette, um, what we do is we have a command post set up downtown here at Doyle, a few blocks away from here. Um, right out of the Chief of Operations Office, Karen Kepler. 
So we have a team that assembles there out at the school in the principal's office. They huddle in the principal's office. They have a phone there. And we literally, for three-plus hours that day, had an open conference call between Principal Storch's office at La Follette and downtown as we, as I'm working two phones, talking with MPD detectives and lieutenants um, on the investigation where that's going and making decisions to make sure we're keeping kids safe at school. Um, some of the initial things we did that day, we closed campus uh, for lunch. All of Madison High Schools have an open campus lunch. We knew that day we had a crime scene two blocks away from school. We had media all over the neighborhood. There was no reason why we needed to open the campus and send 1,000-plus kids outside uh, for lunch. We kept them all indoors that day. Um, there was a lot of Jimmy John deliveries uh, to the school that we weren't expecting. But uh, uh, we actually made a decision that any food we had in the school, it was if kids didn't have money, we didn't care. We sent them down there. We actually improvised, did two lunch periods. We fed 800 kids from noon to 1230, fed the other 800 from 1230 to 1, and by 1 o'clock in the afternoon we had the school, at least inside the school, back to normal, and we kept them all there all day. If a student wanted to go home or the parent came to pick them up, sure, um, we arranged that and made it happen. But uh, uh, my understanding is a lot of the kids um, actually stayed there and, um, and stayed throughout the day. Um, we do a lot to create and strengthen a, what we, I kind of refer to it, and what we're trying to do is it's, it's, it's a culture of safety. Um, there isn't any one thing that we do um, that's going to make a school safe. Um, and it only takes one kid to open a door and let somebody in, and it defeats all everything you've done to try to make your school safe. But part of that culture is trying to get students, staff, um, and the visitors to our building to all understand the sanctity of the school and the environment that we're trying to create there. Um, I gave you a, a website link uh, to MMSD school strategies. We've got like three web pages of 20-some strategies that we employ. And, the, and I'm going to talk a little bit at the very end about the police officers in the school and the ERO contract, because you know that's been a, a lot in the local media. But with all the discussion about the EROs in the school, and I, as, I was actually one of the first EROs at La Follette High School in 1996 when we experimented that year at La Follette and West, and myself and three other officers, Tara Dommerhausen, George Chavez, and Detective Jack Nielsen, we rotated days of the week and went over and worked with Mike Meissen, who was the principal at La Follette at the time. Um, and after that first pilot year, MMSD and the police department said, yeah, this is good. Let's, let's try to make this, keep this going. Um, but you think with all the discussion today now, 20-plus years later, that you think EROs are the only thing we have in place to keep our schools safe. And that's not it at all. There's a lot more to it than just the EROs. Um, our Chief of Operations, Karen Kepler, i got to give a shout-out to her. This is basically that team down at MMSD. Matt Bell's our general counsel. Ricardo Jara from uh, Los Angeles is the new Chief of Staff for uh, Superintendent Cheatham. Karen... Uh, was a longtime principal, 20 years close to that, at Emerson. Uh, if any of your kids went to Emerson, uh, she was the principal there for a long time. She's been in the chief of operations role for about three years now. If you're a UW hockey, women's hockey fan, her daughter, her daughter is Claudia Kepler, who was the, uh, just re, uh, was the captain for the uh, Badger women's hockey team last year and now is playing over in Sweden. Cherise Perry is an attorney in our legal services. Brian... Um, coordinator of intensive support, Chad Weesey, uh, former principal at La Follette. He's the director of building services now. But basically, when we have a critical incident like we did last week over at La Follette, this is this team, most of them, this is who we're assembling downtown here at Doyle to respond. I'm going to hit a couple of points here. 
There is a new mandatory reporting requirement around threats of school violence um, that if any person believes in good faith um, that an individual uh, seen the course of their professional duties makes a threat of school violence, it's serious and imminent, um, they have to report that to the police. The legislature, the elements of that's reported to the police, um, made by a person seeing their duties, um, and if uh, the above criteria met, they must notify by phone or in person a law enforcement agency of facts and circum circumstances behind that good faith belief that they um, are, have heard or observed the threat of school violence. Um, interestingly, what the legislature did when they passed this mandatory reporting, and how many of you are familiar with mandatory reporting as it relates to child abuse, child neglect? Okay, good, I thought that would resonate with you. So what the legislature did that, if you're already a mandatory reporter for child abuse, child neglect, you now are also a mandatory reporter for acts of school violence. Um, one of the first calls I got on this was a, a psychiatrist that works for UW Health, who um, uh, they initially reported to UW Police Department and contacted me um, regards to a disclosure someone made in therapy. And um, this is exactly the type of thing that um, the law intended to do, is for people to bring that information forward. Because one of the things, and we know we've got a huge body of knowledge, as sad as it is, around school shooters and active shooters um, over the last two decades. But one of the things that we know is that there's a thing called leakage. And it's like close to 80%, 70 to 80% of all of these shooters have told at least one person about their intended plans prior to them actually doing it. And that's really what this legislation is trying to focus in on, is trying to um, get people to bring forward information. The other thing the law did is that if you, um, it provides immunity uh, from civil prosecution, um, but also there's some criminal penalties there that if you fail to report, um, you can be fined a thousand bucks or in, uh, in prison, not more than six months or both. The school safety plans, I'll speak to this a little bit. Those of you, um, how many of you had kids in MMSD schools? Yeah, a number of you. Do you remember going in any classrooms and seeing these little flip charts on the walls? And usually, this is the kind of the Bible of MMSD. This is our emergency procedure flip charts. They go through all sorts of different protocols with respect to gas leaks, fire leaks, uh, fire um, evacuation, schools, fights, and disturbances. Um, there's actually an, um, our code red active uh, threat protocol is in there and another one we call taking safety precautions to an outside threat. This particular strategy, these procedures have served us well, but they certainly are something that we're looking to improve upon. And you heard Kristen mention a little bit ago about the standard response protocol. And I met a woman here tonight who is actually family of the folks that started the I Love You uh, Foundation. Um, there's some neat things um, and new best practices that are evolving out there. And that team that I showed you that picture of, that's some of the stuff that we're working hard on now. It, literally, it feels like we're trying to build a plane while we're flying it because we still got our jobs to do every day dealing with all the, everything that's going on the schools. But at the same time, we're trying to take advantage of the money that's coming from the state. And the school board, quite frankly, has um, approved upwards of $5 million additional dollars for us in addition to the grant funding we're receiving to help us advance forward some of these uh, initiatives. The school safety planning that we're doing, you hear Kristen speak to that um, uh, tomorrow. Uh, we're, we're working with an organization called the Wisconsin School Safety Coordinators Association, WISCA. 
Um, they actually were very influential in helping form Act 143 in that legislation and these requirements around uh, school assessments. We are actually have WISCA at the Madison Police Department Training Center tomorrow for eight hours. We have a number of MPD officers and school staff and all of our EROs that are getting trained on this assessment process. And what we have on our plate is that starting uh, Friday, actually, we're going to be at Kennedy Elementary, but Chief of Operations Karen Kepler has a plan built out. We have to do assessments on 50-plus school buildings in Madison, including off-site locations where we educate students. Like some of you go in and out of Hoyt um, for some of the senior programming up there. We have our sale program up there, Goodman Community Center. We have kids there. We've got kids all over Madison in some type of educational setting. Any place where we have kids and we're teaching kids during the daytime, we have to do a, a site assessment on that location, and we also have to write a school safety plan. We do that in conjunction with the police department. We've got a timeline that the police department's going to be reviewing these around the week of November 12th. Uh, the last board meeting in the month of November right now, it's, uh, the school board is going to review and approve each of these individual school safety plans, and then we have to get them to Kristen by uh, January 1st of this year to be compliant with Act 143, and we're working really hard towards that. It's, a, it's an unbelievable endeavor. Each school safety plan will probably be in the area of 40-some pages long uh, to give you an idea of the work that's ahead of us. Um, this is just some information about what must be included um, in there. Another thing, um, this wasn't required in the state law, but we put it in our board policy that adopted this, but we made it mandatory that every school uh, form a school safety team, and that schools, um, and it's a little bit different than the threat assessment one um, that's required as part of the grant, but um, this has got, um, we're asking for community members, um, law enforcement, um, to meet at least one semester, including students, and involving them in that um, and, and having the principals do that. Um, that hasn't been done um, consistently, at least in MMSD in the past. Um, some of the things that a school safety plan cannot do in the legislature was really um, specific about this. Um, a school safety plan cannot require a teacher or anybody, can't prohibit them from calling 911. There are some school boards that they want to tightly control and only identify certain people in their schools who actually call the police or bring the police to the school. The legislature clearly said that we cannot require an employee to contact a school administrator or other official before they feel the need to call 911. Um, the, the safety plan cannot prohibit an employee from reporting school violence or a threat directly to law enforcement and cannot prohibit uh, an employee from reporting suspicious individual activity directly to law enforcement. So basically all three very similar, but you know, if a person feel, if a teacher, staff, custodian feels a need to call the police and they want to see the police at school, the law, uh, Act 143 says call the police. Um, this is just a slide here on the, uh, safety, on the safety assessments. This is the different um, parts of um, the safety assessment process. They look at a lot of stuff, um, our emergency procedures, our training we do, our team roles, how we um, do visitors, the way these assessments work, basically our teams that we're training tomorrow, starting next week, we're gonna do two schools a day, or two schools in the morning, two schools at night, or in the afternoon, those schools, they descend on those schools, they spend some time at the beginning observing what goes on at the beginning of the school day, they meet with the principal, they got a huge 140 question questionnaire they go over with them, um, then they spend some time um, uh, with them, uh, walking the school afterwards, um, and then uh, we're, we're doing, taking those assessments and uh, using them to help develop with the principal their school safety plans. 
the money, this, the initial grant we got back in June um, averaged out to about, um, we could request up to $20,000 per DPI coded school. Um, 950,000 of that's going to actually just interior and exterior door locks. To put this in some perspective for you, we've got in our 48 traditional DPI coded buildings, we have 1,300 exterior doors and 2,500 interior doors. And all of those doors are all getting all new locking mechanisms. One of the um, think about your hotel room when you go to the Holiday Inn or Hampton, wherever you go to, that, that door usually has some type of magnetic card. That's how the new MMSD school classroom doors are gonna look like. The teacher will have a door, uh, be part of their ID card actually. They'll scan it, that's what will open the door for them. The default is always gonna be locked. The doors are always gonna be locked. That's the safest thing, that's the, one of the best practices we know now is that if a teacher has a locked classroom door, it's the safest um, thing that we can possibly have in place. One of the biggest issues that we run into is that teachers don't like to have their doors unlocked. They like to have their doors open. And, um, and when we have a crisis in a school, like we did, for instance, last year at uh, um, John Muir Elementary, Andrea Kreft, the principal, uh, MPD was in the neighborhood chasing somebody, and the guy, 10 o'clock in the morning, was the first 60-degree day we had in April, ran right in through the open gym door that the gym teacher had opened because the gym was hot. They had to actually implement a code red drill. And off, female officers come run in the front door, yell at the principal, you've got, a, you've got an active threat, you've got an intruder, she gets on the PA. When the teachers tried to start grab, finding their keys to lock their classroom doors and this and that, when you are in an absolute crisis moment, you know, you get tunnel vision, and unless you've actually practiced and rehearsed that, it's gonna be very difficult for you to even find your keys and put your keys in the door and lock your door, right? And when I went out that afternoon and did a debriefing with the staff, because a lot of them were quite traumatized to a degree from what they experienced. Fortunately, the young man was, that the MPD was chasing was only in the school for about 30 seconds. They had him handcuffed and on their way out of there. But boy, it left an impact, not so much on the kids, but on the teachers. And I tell you, that was quite, I really could have had a video camera and recorded um, the statements that they were making um, that afternoon when we debriefed that incident. Um, Glass hardening film is something else that the state allowed us to purchase that uh, we, we did. Um, they, um, it's some material that 3M makes. It goes over the front of doors. It doesn't make it bulletproof resistant, but it definitely stops an intruder from trying to smash out or, or uh, slows down uh, a bullet from going through that. So we've got some money, and we're going to be doing that at our welcome centers that we're building it out at all of our schools. Um, this is three to seven million dollars. Actually, the Madison Board of Education approved. In addition to this, we went before them in June. It, you know, right now, uh, Lakeview Elementary is a school that we've kind of got set up to be our prototype. La Follette's high on the list, but you know that twenty thousand dollars for La Follette High School that the state's given us isn't enough to cover all the locks we got to do at La Follette High School. We know it's going to cost a lot more money than that, and I can say that what the Board of Education has done. They basically have set us up for, this is probably the single one-time largest investment that's ever been made to try to improve this, uh, at least the physical security of our Madison schools, and I commend the school board uh, for doing that. Last thing I'll talk about here, the ERO, the ERO discussion that's been out there. Salma Frankel, uh, now the ERO at um, East High School. You heard about this ERO ad hoc committee that gets formed about a year ago. They've been kind of studying whether or not we should have EROs in the school. There are parts of our population in our community um, that 
um, don't, don't have real good experiences or haven't had good experiences with law enforcement. And um, it can be traumatizing for them just to simply be around a police officer. That voice has been heard a lot over the past several months through this ERO ad hoc process. They finally, the group last Wednesday night, finalized their report. This Monday night, there's a school board meeting that they're going to accept that report, and then we're going to be now, I, or, I facilitate a group work group just with the EROs. We've been asked to look at that along with some other things and try to come up with what is the MPD, MMSD, ERO 2.0 program going to look like. Our goal is by the uh, end of November to have a report back to the school board, and the school board will then make a decision. You know, we do contract negotiations, or um, I think there's a lot of uh, interest in getting a contract done, um, and if that's the route we go, we want to get it done by the end of the year, no later than middle of January. So that's kind of where things are at right now. Kind of uh, just watch that and continue to, and if you have a, any feelings about one way or the other, I strongly encourage you to contact the school board. Okay, thank you, folks. You're listening to School Safety, Challenges and Responses, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are Kristen Devitt, Director of the Office of School Safety with the Wisconsin Department of Justice. Joe Ballas is the Coordinator of School Safety and Security at the Madison Metropolitan School District. And Jack Larson is a UW-Madison student. My name is Jack Larson. I am a student currently at uni uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am a sophomore. Um, I am studying political science currently, probably adding something onto that as well. Um, beyond that, as mentioned before, I am vice chair with Young Democrats of Wisconsin, which is a statewide organization that gears, uh, that's geared toward Democrats uh, in the age range of four, or 18 to 40. Um, but that's not really why I'm here tonight to talk about uh, Democrats. I'm here to talk about gun violence, gun safety, and gun safety legislation, uh, in addition, and specifically in regards to school safety. Uh, so that's where some of my experiences more recently come into play. Uh, I am one of the founding members of Badgers Demand Action, which is an offshoot of Students Demand Action, a group organized nationally by Every Town for Gun Safety, uh, with the parent organization Moms Demand Action. Uh, before that, I helped. Uh, organized the March for Our Lives in March um, in the city of Madison. We had about 3,000 people show up, um, people from across the state of Wisconsin and even outside of Wisconsin. I see some people nodding their heads. It seems like maybe some of you are in attendance, uh, in which I will say thank you for that. We appreciate it. Um, but kind of moving on forward to more of our topic for tonight, which is obviously school safety, I want to thank the two other panelists. I think they really addressed a lot of what's being done right now, uh, and kind of the one half of the equation, which is creating a climate for students that feels safe. But I think the half of the equation that unfortunately they were unable to address, because it really isn't addressed in the legislation that created the office that they're working in, is actual gun safety legislation. Uh, around the same time that the legislation passed to create the Office of School Safety, was in the assembly, so was legislation for red flag laws, so was legislation for universal background checks. Both of those were struck down, unfortunately on very partisan lines as well. Um, so one incredibly important half of the equation is beyond just dealing with and preventing violence before it starts in a school, 
which is incredibly important for students and for student climate, is preventing students who have violent tendencies from accessing weapons and firearms specifically. I know when you look at a situation like the Parkland student, uh, when, with the Parkland uh, shooting, the student that committed that shooting, many of the red flags were there. He had been reported to numerous law enforcement agencies before the shooting occurred. The school was aware of some of these violent tendencies, as were most of his classmates, yet nothing was legally able to happen to prevent him from possessing or requiring the firearms that he ended up using in the school shooting. Uh, much in regard to the recent uh, accidental shooting related to the, uh, I believe it was La Follette again, there were students on a bus, uh, one student was able to acquire, I believe it was his parents' handgun, and accidentally ended up shooting a student on uh, Madison Public Transportation. These are not addressed by the legislation, again, that established these school safety offices, and it seems like our current legislature has been refusing to actually take action on these issues. A lot of the legislation that we know can work has been implemented in other states and other countries. We saw uh, in the aftermath of the Port Arthur massacre in Australia, much stricter legislation related to assault-style semi-automatic weapons. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what, in my opinion, are kind of those jargony terms, an assault-style weapon would usually be a civilian version of a military weapon. Uh, so most military weapons are designed to be light, compact, uh, with automated fire options that allow soldiers, that allow military personnel to utilize these weapons as efficiently as possible. Those civilian versions for those weapons are basically exactly the same. The only thing they lack is a fully automatic fire function. So the difference between a fully automatic weapon and a semi-automatic weapon, a fully automatic weapon, you hold the trigger down and it shoots. It continues to shoot. It doesn't stop shooting until you let go of the trigger or until you run out of bullets. A semi-automatic weapon is each shot is fired by a pull of the trigger. Uh, and a lot of the weapons that are, again, those civilian versions of military weapons, while they are semi-automatic, they're incredibly light, incredibly compact, and weapons that can be heavily modified as well. Uh, if you, many of you remember the Vegas shooting, uh, that shooter was using heavily modified civilian versions of military firearms. He was using the AR-15, which is typically what we see in a lot of these school shootings and a lot of shootings in general. Uh, the AR-15 is a version, again, a civilian version of a military weapon, and oftentimes one of the most common features we see replaced is the stock. The stock is the part of the gun that sits up against your shoulder, and many times this stock is replaced for a bump stock. What essentially a bump stock does is it allows a shooter to use the natural recoil of a gun to turn a semi-automatic weapon into almost a fully automatic weapon. And I say almost because the accuracy when you're using a bump shot, or a bump, a bump stock, excuse me, is reduced, but the fire rate is increased since you're essentially able to single, you're able to turn single instances of pulling that trigger into a repeated process based on the mechanics of the gun itself. Um, I know that got really jargony really fast, um, but basically the point I'm trying to get at is a lot of the weapons that we see used in these school shootings, again, they're very compact, they're very light, they're designed to be stealthy, they're designed to be deadly, and they're designed to do the most damage as quickly as they possibly can. And many of them allow modifications that increase that damage output, increase that concealability, and increase the total amount of damage that can be done to a school. 
So many of the cosmetic features that were mentioned in the previous two presentations will help with that. Uh, and it, fortunately, it seems like a lot of those cosmetic features are more discreet. Um, one of the issues that I always come back to when talking with uh, legislatures and other students about some of the current proposed uh, sa school safety plans are if these measures aren't discreet, if these measures turn schools into fortresses and those fortresses start to mimic prisons, that does a lot to impact the learning climate for students. I was very fortunate. The high school that I went to uh, was from a relatively affluent area. We had our school safety officer usually dressed down. The only uniform elements were his badge on his belt that he wore every day. Other than that, I usually saw him in a polo uh, and khakis. Uh, so he wasn't a uniformed officer, which in my opinion helped go, uh, helped great lengths to go to calming students down when he was in a, when we were in his presence. He was also just a pretty cool dude in general, so that helped. Um, but I know other friends at other schools and other districts uh, they have officers in full uniform wearing uh, their entire police garb. They have officers that are regularly patrolling the school grounds, which is great for safety, uh, but it's not great for helping these students feel comfortable in a learning environment. Um, so a lot of the issues when it comes to school safety is addressing legislatively how do we fix the gun problem, how do we fix the safety problem, and how do we fix the climate problem. So on the gun problem, I mentioned these a couple times, we need universal background checks. There are a lot of loopholes in this country, but especially in this state, that go into getting access to these weapons. Uh, at a gun show, you can really easily buy and sell guns without having any of that reported. Uh, at uh, different uh, events, it's incredibly easy to just... Trans my dad, I I'm a sportsman, my father's a sportsman, we participate in Wisconsin's hunting environment, but my dad for my birthday gave me my grandfather's gun. I don't think my grandfather reported that he gave my dad that gun. I don't think my dad reported that he gave me that gun. Uh, there's really no way to track that procession of people that is transferring ownership, and that's something that needs to be addressed as well. Uh, beyond that, obviously, I've talked a little bit about the types of weapons available, um, and a lot of that has to do as well with procedures in the home about how you care for your guns. If you're not locking up your guns, if you're not storing your guns and your ammunition in separate spots, you're leading to incidents like we saw with those two LaFollette students of a student accidentally finding and then deciding to take their parents' firearm. These are things that are recommended you do in gun safety classes. They're not things that are required you do legally by any statute of Wisconsin law. To me, that's a problem. If I can go home, grab a, an unlocked gun that is almost fully loaded from a shelf, not even a locked shelf, just a shelf in our house, that's bad. I can grab that, go anywhere with it, and it could take a full day. It could take until my dad gets home and then some to notice that that firearm is gone. So legislatively, there's a lot we can do to fix these issues if there's the political will and then the actual legislative ability taken to make those changes. So I'd encourage you all to find your gun sense candidates. Uh, Moms Demand Action in every town endorses, I think what, we've endorsed over 5,000 candidates this cycle alone. Uh, you can find candidates who support 
common sense gun safety legislation like universal background checks, like mandatory locking and storage, like another thing I mentioned, red flag laws. This was struck down in the assembly, again, during that same March session. These red flag laws would have allowed family members and officials that can report to report to a judge that this person is unfit to use a firearm. They'd go through uh, essentially a background check process to determine whether or not this person should be able to purchase a firearm, and then they'd be put on a red flag law list. It also allowed self-reporting for individuals who feel like they could be a harm to themselves or others, the ability to say, I don't want to be legally allowed to purchase a firearm. And if I want to purchase a firearm, I have to go through extra hoops to get there. What I'm talking about is not trying to add hoops on to legal gun owners. I'm not trying to prevent people from getting guns. I like going to the range and shooting clays just as much as anyone in Wisconsin who has gone shooting before. I don't like the idea of someone getting their hands on an unlocked firearm. I don't like the idea of someone being able to go to a gun show, purchase a firearm for dirt cheap without any kind of tracking process or any kind of background check or mental health check. Uh, so that kind of covers some of the legislative prescriptions that we can take to hopefully get weapons out of the hands of people that could end up shooting schools. Another part of that, obviously, like I mentioned, is just safety in schools themselves. Uh, I'm not going to cover that as in depth because I think the other two panelists did a great job of addressing what's being done. Uh, but obviously, like I've mentioned before, if those measures can be discreet, if they can, again, provide safety to students without making students feel like they've been imprisoned or feel anxious or feel unsafe because of the institution as opposed to because of someone coming into the school. So there's almost two sides to school safety is the institution overbearing and preventing these students from learning and feeling like they have an environment where they're not threatened by some institutional power. There's also obviously the safety aspect with do students feel safe from each other? Or do they feel like other students will not do them harm? And I think, again, it sounds like a lot of the climate uh, prescriptions being worked on by the Office of School Safety are trying to discreetly address these measures by ensuring that resource officers are well-trained in how to manage and handle working with students, by ensuring that a lot of the cosmetic and architectural designs that are going into new schools being built and even into old schools that are being renovated are actually working, again, to discreetly protect schools as opposed to explicitly showing students that they are on a campus that can easily be locked down. It goes a long way to creating a safer climate. And then the third portion of this that I would like to talk about as well is obviously funding. And to me, funding breaks down into two portions. Do we have funding adequate for the schools to do their job? And do we have funding adequate for the bureaucracy of that to happen? Obviously, under the current administration, unfortunately, schools have been suffering education cuts since Governor Walker took office. It's really hard for schools to prioritize school safety and mental health when they don't have enough money to keep some of their core curriculum running and when they have to be cutting classes that benefit students in their educational experience. So voting for candidates that support public education and that support fully funding our schools is a huge help to making sure that they can then also address school safety concerns while still providing the basic concerns that students need to be in school. Uh, and then obviously there's funding the bureaucracy of it all. Again, they've, we've implemented these new grant programs, which is uh, a step in the right direction. We've implemented, uh, I believe, other programs in the past to try and address 
some of the funding cuts that we've already seen, they could always use more funding. Supporting, again, supporting individuals who are going to support fully funding the bureaucratic measures that need to be taken as well to address school safety concerns will go a great lengths to helping reduce violence in schools, but specifically gun violence. Uh, and then I also wanted to take a very brief moment to talk a little bit about uh, the work I'm doing. As I mentioned, I'm um, a founding member of Badgers Demand Action. Uh, like I said, it's a branch of Students Demand Action. Our main goal is to try and convince legislators to listen to us. Um, like, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, uh, our main goal is, again, to convince legislators to become gun sense legislators, to convince the people that hold the levers of power to tilt them in the right direction when it comes to providing students with the resources they need in school to feel safe and ensuring that there's legislation on the books that prevents people from getting firearms when they shouldn't have them. Uh, additionally, we also work to support gun sense candidates. If legislators refuse to become gun sense legislators, I'd much rather have a gun sense candidate knock them out in the election than to replace them again and again and again. Uh, so a lot of the work that Badgers Demand Action is going to be providing resources for students to become activists because it's come to that point. It's come to the point where I think I skipped about a week's worth of class to help plan the March for Our Lives because that meant more to me, meant more to me planning that march to make our legislators hear us and act on these issues than it meant for me to be sitting in the classroom. I think it was my philosophy lecture that I missed the most. Uh, <laughs> although I do love philosophy. I am getting a certificate in philosophy, so not knocking on that profession. Um, <laughs> but it, it really is, we need to start shifting the dialogue in addition to providing these cosmetic and architectural and broader climate adjustments for school. We also need to shift the needle on where our country stands on gun violence. We need to start working to ensure that students don't need to be activists in addition to being students, that teachers don't need to be activists in addition to being teachers, that we can ensure our laws match up with the safety we continue to say we want in our schools. <laughs> So I am uh, one of the local group leads for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense of America, and um, we are a nonprofit grassroots group of volunteers who are working to end gun violence in our community and also um, enable candidates who will work to advocate for safer gun laws. So I think a lot of uh, people came to Moms Demand Action with the spotlight on um, school shootings. I think that kind of brought things home for a lot of people. And um, I think one of the questions that was really well addressed is that we, you know, the schools can only do so much that we need to understand how children are getting their hands on guns that they shouldn't have in the first place. So Jack spoke really well to that. And I also want to mention that there is a program that we have created. It is called the Be Smart Program. And it is an educational program. It's actually not about policy at all. It's an educational program that we are hoping to, to put into the Madison School District. We'll see, we're working on it. <laughs> um, to get, um, it helps educate people on proper gun storage. So it, it, it is all the things that we talked about as far as storing your gun, your firearm, separate from your ammunition, proper locks, everything 
along those lines. It's got a ton more detail than that. <laughs> it also has a, a great um, educational piece about parents asking other parents about their own uh, gun safety measures in their home. So if you have a kid that's going to a play date, that you know that the play date that they're at, if they have firearms in the home, you should have the conversation about whether those firearms are prop properly locked up. So hopefully we can uh, get that into the Madison School District a little bit. I know we're in the early stages of trying to do that. Um, and I guess the biggest way that you guys can all play a part in this is to be an advocate for what Jack said is gun sense candidates. And these are people who've committed to advocating for uh, safer gun laws and uh, are not gonna be held hostage by NRA funding and to sway their votes. So um, one thing that you can do, if you want to know who on your ballot in November is a gun sense candidate, you can go to gunsensevoter.org and that, if you type in your address, will list everyone on your ballot who's been approved as a gun sense candidate. So if that helps you make your decisions about who you're gonna vote for in the fall, well, next month, then that could be a great resource. Uh, I'm a poll worker. Probably everybody in this room is a poll worker. <laughs> uh, and we were invited recently to take training for active shooter situations. It was offered by the Madison Police Department. It took place on a weeknight at their academy headquarters um, on Femrite on the east side. Uh, it was very, very good. And they said it was developed by Texas State University. It was called, I think, Avoid, Deny, Defend. And I just wondered, is that what is being uh, taught to Madison teachers and staff, that program? Great uh, question. So yes, we've had had a number of staff on their own that have gone through that. Um, the officers that started that actually worked for me, with me, down at the uh, South Police District, Sergeant Sean Engel um, was probably part of that training. And they got a team of about six officers. It's called CRACE, Civilian Response to Active Shooter Encounter. Um, Madison Police Department, that team has trained over 4,000 people in the last three or four years on the, um, it's really more of an options-based approach to um, active shooters. Um, and you hit it, avoid, deny, defend. Um, there's other ones similar um, that are out there. Um, Run, hide, fight uh, is one that's out there. There's another protocol called ALICE. Um, there's another protocol called the Standard Response Protocol. Um, there's a lot of things happening with respect to that. I think the, what we believe, we want our teachers and our staff to feel confident in our emergency procedures, and we want them to feel um, that they're well prepared to be good first responders. And to that extent, I think the MPD's CRACE training for those staff that have gone through it, um, it helps open their eyes, um, think, putting themselves and thinking about that day um, when such an event might occur. Um, but it's also good because there's other events that happen in our schools, like the incident that happened I was describing at John Muir Elementary, when somebody running from the police just ran into the school. Well, um, those types of trainings and preparation are all good. And right now, uh, quite honestly, we it's one of my big assessments looking, I've had the luxury of about a year plus now in my job. Yeah, we got a lot more we can do with respect to 
how we train staff and prepare staff to be good first responders. And um, I can tell you that uh, that is part of this building the airplane while we're flying it um, process. That's exactly what we're doing. I can tell you that specific to the CRACE training, um, all Madison School District nurses and um, the, those 20 plus school security assistants that I'm responsible for, we have a professional development day in early December and uh, we are actually doing the CRACE training with MPD and in addition, um, uh, there's another great program out there called Stop the Bleed um, that the Madison Fire Department's very involved in, but it's basically um, next to like where all the AEDs are at in our schools, they're hanging now basically red bags. They're filled with a pack with 10 tourniquets so that uh, in the event you would have a need to apply a tourniquet or stop someone that's bleeding, um, that that equipment is there and it's accessible in the same locations that uh, we have AEDs and our fire alarms and everything else in our schools right now. Good question. Hi, I just want to thank you for your presentations. Um, I have been an educator for over 40 years in the United States. I was the principal investigator on the Syracuse University Violence Prevention Project in the Syracuse City Schools from 1998 to 2002. I was working with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Violence Prevention in a project which had seven universities around the country working on the issue of school violence. So I speak out of enormous, just enormous disappointment at what I'm hearing tonight. I think the extraordinary thing that's come to me as I've been watching the school shootings that have gone on is the realization that those adults who were focusing on attacking schools did so because of something that had occurred to them while they were school children. And we had spent many years, many of us in the program that I was working with, in trying to develop programs in the schools that would teach the children how to handle the ways in which they are thinking about acting to other children and to adults. It was a me mechanism by which we provided them with a training in violence prevention so that they learned how to control their own anger and how to look at other people in a way that they understood what the, the responsibilities they would have when they became citizens. I am enormously disappointed that huge sums of money are now having to be put into the schools so that they can have the kinds of security that you feel that you are going to provide them. We must look at what we're talking about in terms of violence in the society as a whole. In 2002, my colleagues and I put forward a book which is called Preventing Violence in Schools, A Challenge to American Democracy. It raises the issues that are coming before you. And I think that while you are extraordinarily careful in developing programs at the moment, which are going to deal with some of the issues within schools, you're taking onto yourselves as police people 
tasks which don't have to be just in that area. And I want to know what you see as the connection between yourselves and the educators who are in the schools and how rather than just going and giving them extra locks on their doors, you are going to work with them to create a different attitude in the society towards violence, towards one another. Well, you definitely have a bunch of very impressive experience in what you have researched in the past. And um, I would like to say that we are actually supporting programs like what you mentioned. So when the school districts are interested in implementing a climate and culture program, such as a social emotional learning program, um, or um, another supportive intervention for students, we are funding the training, the materials, all of that for, for them to implement it in the schools. Um, and, and those things can be really expensive. It's an everybody function. So I have experience in law enforcement, but I also have experience as a social worker and as an educator. And I think all three of those entities need to work together. Now, what we're doing in the school is that for some buildings, we have to make them safer, physically safer. Um, but along with the money that we've been giving the schools for those physical measures, we are requiring them to deliver training to all of their staff members about adverse childhood experiences and trauma-informed practices. We're requiring them to put together um, school safety intervention teams and learn how to complete threat assessments so that early on in a child's educational career, they can identify behaviors that are threatening or would indicate that they're experiencing some sort of mental health difficulty um, or experiencing a crisis or have been traumatized by something. And before they get to the point where they're making a threat, they can be provided with the resources that they need so that they can overcome those challenges. Um, we're requiring that 10% of every person who works in a school, so we're talking about teachers, psychologists, social workers, counselors, administrators, and even school resource officers have to attend the adolescent mental health training. Um, and that talks to them about building relationships with kids and to help them develop stronger coping mechanisms, help them develop stronger decision-making skills and problem-making skills so that they are able, when they, when, they, when they see that they're struggling with something or they see that they're having a hard time, that they can reach out to someone that they trust and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this before they act out violently. So when we talk about prevention, we're not just talking about prevention from putting more locks on doors. We're talking about prevention from elementary school up so that by the time a child reaches junior high or high school, they're not acting out violently, that at the elementary school level, we've been able to address, address those behaviors. So it is, it is a, a change in focus. And when we've talked about active shooter situations in the past, a lot of those things have been focused on law enforcement and what training they're doing. But really, since 1999, when Columbine happened, the same recommendations have been there for, for improving the school, site, the school climate and culture, 
for implementing a threat assessment protocol, for doing all of the things that are not about the physical security of the building, but about how the, the people inside the building operate with each other. Um, and that is really what we're trying to get at. There are the physical upgrades that need to be made, but we also are really trying to focus on making sure that, that children have the support that they need so that they are able to function better in school and in society later when they become adults. The, thank you for your work. I know this is a, a very serious and important topic. You know that phrase, it can't happen here. I think we're all at the point now where we say it could happen here. My question though, I, I was on the school board in my community for several years, um, and I follow many of these issues closely, and one piece that I'm stumped with that I'd appreciate your perspective on is the recommendation to um, arm a teaching staff or some teachers in a school as a way of protecting students. I don't, I don't mind saying I, I, teachers do not need to have guns, period. I carried one for, <laughs> I carried a gun for 32 and a half years. Fortunately, never ever had to use it. But I was well trained and very confident that if that day ever did come, I could do what I was trained to do. Our school teachers need to be focused on doing the job that we ask them to do, and that's taking care of our kids and educating our kids. And the idea of arming teachers in schools is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, I know some schools, uh, I was at some conferences earlier this summer, they talked about bringing retired officers back into the school and having an armed presence. Some schools, particularly, I think Kristen has to deal with a lot of this with the smaller school districts around the state, um, they can't afford to have a full-time police officer there. You know, we spend $360,000 a year to have four full-time Madison police officers assigned to each of our high schools. Um, that's a good chunk of change, um, but that's a commitment that this school board has felt um, it's a very, very important, and we embrace our EROs um, and their role in our schools. But the idea of arming teachers um, I just, uh, I hope we never ever come to that day and I don't think there's any, any place for it. Completely agree on that. Arming teachers is not the correct way to go about handling school safety. Uh, and I just wanted to touch on two specific reasons why. Um, the first reason being it reinforces a pretty negative mentality uh, surrounding students and surrounding how student officer interactions would occur at a school. Uh, it reinforces that you know school to prison pipeline idea that you are here at this school not to get an education but because you need to be held somewhere for a portion of the day while you're also getting your education. It is in my opinion a pretty negative way to reinforce what should generally be a positive learning environment but to me the even uh, bigger concern that I see with it is it reinforces a pretty negative idea that Right, I feel like we've all heard it, that a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. And while in some cases that thankfully can be true, we do see individuals like officers who prevent other armed individuals from causing more harm, uh, it still doesn't make the situation better. Uh, many times in situations where civilians are also armed and using firearms for self-defense, 
it creates a situation where maybe there would have been one active shooter into a situation where there are two, three, even four active shooters. Because the police don't count who's a good guy, who's a bad guy. They just count how many guns are there in the room. So it, it doesn't go to help arming teachers wouldn't provide a safer environment for the students. It wouldn't help provide a better narrative on this idea. The idea that a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun in every single case is, it's false, first off. And it's, again, it's a negative idea to reinforce in our culture because it, it, it takes away the pretty heavy burden that firearm ownership and firearm care is. I think that's another pretty essential part of school safety and of violence prevention with firearms in general is reinforcing that firearms aren't toys. I feel like a lot of times, and I know this from being on the range, there were people that would get those fancy expensive guns that you know were the civilian versions of military weapons and they were like, oh, I'm so excited to essentially play with this new gun. Uh, so again, reinforcing that idea that a good guy with a gun can always stop a bad guy with a gun. It goes a far way from actually getting at the root of the firearm problem. Okay, the question is, comment, uh, and it'll be need to be very briefly, about 3D printing of plastic guns. Yeah, so um, with advances in 3D printing more and more, uh, it, the technology of 3D print is getting better and better every day. Uh, as of right now, no one has been able to 3D print a fully functional firearm. Uh, the extent of it has been firearms that can usually shoot several rounds before the parts break, and that's just because of limitations in the materials. Uh, but there's no legislation out there to address this. Um, I believe right now the only current thing being done is there are federal administration, or federal bureaucracies that are trying to take down these blueprints, but that doesn't mean that someone could just design a blueprint. Uh, it's as big as a loophole as, essentially, um, you can buy unmilled gun parts, and if you have some basic milling tools that I think cost about 100 to $200, you can mill out, essentially, what is the center. It's, uh, it's the piece of the gun that feeds bullets into the chamber to then be fired. Uh, it's essentially the same loophole as that, where you are unable to police the manufacturer of what are essentially ghost guns, guns that do not have serial numbers, that are not manufactured by firearm manufacturers, that are not in the system that we have, which in and of itself is sorely lacking. Um, but it, it's another one of those really deadly loopholes. And when I say deadly, I mean within the next five years, if this isn't addressed legislatively, uh, I think more commonly than just hearing it was an AR-15 at this most recent mass shooting, it was a ghost gun 3D printed AR-15 at this most recent mass shooting. Uh, so it's definitely an issue out there. Call your legislators, look at Gun Sense candidates on uh, gunsensevoter.org, find the people that are going to address this issue because right now nothing's being done. Thank you again so very much for all three of you. You've been listening to School Safety, Challenges and Responses with three speakers. Kristen Devitt is the Director of the Office of School Safety with the Wisconsin Department of Justice. Joe Ballas is the Coordinator of School Safety and Security with the Madison Metropolitan School District. And Jack Larson is a student at UW-Madison. 
The talk took place on October 3, 2018, at the Capital Lakes Retirement Community in downtown Madison, and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials at the League's website on the League's position on this topic at lwvdanecounty.org. And to find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.